Would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, we ask whether we are guests or new or visiting today or whether we've been here forever, um, whether we know you and have known you for a long time or we're investigating, we ask that uh, this morning you'd take away confusion from us, that you'd make your word and your will very clear and that your spirit would do his work in our hearts even as we, as we listen. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been to a wedding uh, where you're a guest and as you're waiting for the bride to come in, you start thinking, you know what, stuff the groom, she should be marrying me. Me. And you nurse that thought in your head as you're sitting there until all the way until the processional starts and when the silhouette of the bride appears at the back of the, back of the church, as she walks down the aisle, you burst out into the aisle, intercept her and her dad, hi uncle, uh, and you declare your love for this woman and she jumps into your arms and you carry her off into the sunset to live happily ever after with you and not the stupid man sitting at the front with a boutonniere in his, his collar. Have you ever thought about crashing a wedding and interrupting the proceedings? Good. Because <laughs> that's totally ridiculous, isn't it? It's, it's, you don't do that sort of thing. Weddings are happy occasions. Weddings are places where you're meant to be happy for the couple and not planning to jeopardise their future relationship. It's not about you. At least that's how John the Baptist sees himself. Uh, John's playing second fiddle and he couldn't be happier that Jesus is the star. Jesus has come onto the scene, but John's disciples aren't so sure what to think about Jesus. I suppose good on them, good on John's disciples for being loyal to their, to their teacher. They don't want their rabbi to be slighted, they don't want John the Baptist to be thought less of. And to be fair, John the Baptist was an impressive man in his own right, if somewhat enigmatic and quirky as a religious leader. John the Baptist, if you know him, he was a wild man of the wilderness. He lived out in the caves and in the wilderness like a shaggy, old-time, Old Testament prophet. Kind of an enigma to the religious authority of his day. And he was calling loudly for revolution and religious reform. And the people of his day responded. Hundreds of people went out to be baptised by John in the Jordan, even before Jesus came on the scene. People who were serious about repentance, people who were dissatisfied with the status quo, people who were wanting more from life than the here and now. And to them, John the Baptist was this compelling and almost anti-establishment type leader who was encouraging, to get, encouraging them to get real in their spiritual life. I don't know if you can picture what John the Baptist might have looked like. I imagine a brawny, kind of bearded hipster of a man uh, who's just wild and almost brash in how he comes across to people. Think, um, I don't know if you can think, Driscoll mixed with like a... Who's that, who's that um, ex-what Christian dude who's, who's doing survival things around the place? Bear Grylls mixed with... He's, he's this weird, enigmatic man who's new on the scene, who's causing a stir, and you can imagine the kind of disciples who might have gravitated towards John the Baptist... We're talking the discontent, the activists, the revolutionaries, the people looking for a change, the zealots. And this wilderness holy man was creating big ripples in the fabric of his society to the point where pretty soon after this uh, they arrest him and John gets beheaded because he's seen as being such a threat. In our story today, the disciples of John come to him with a bit of a strange dilemma. 
see Jesus is back in the area, back on the same turf as John again. And verse 22 tells us that Jesus had started baptizing people. John was baptizing people. Now Jesus is baptizing people in the same area. So verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anan near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Uh, a certain Jew. This certain Jew who's mentioned here, I'm not 100% on this, I suspect it's none other than maybe the writer of this gospel, John himself, who's gotten into an argument with John the Baptist's disciples about baptism, ceremonial washing. Uh, I say that, I mean, the identity of this certain Jew isn't mentioned, it's not something I'm going to die on a hill for, but I reckon it could be uh, our author John himself, because he tends to do this a few times in this gospel. When John writes about himself in this gospel, He never names himself, but he seems to refer to himself indirectly. Like at the Last Supper, if you know that story, he's writing about sitting around the table and who's sitting there, and when he talks about himself, he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved, who Peter talks to. Or uh, at the resurrection account, when they're running to check out the empty tomb at the resurrection, Peter and John are running to the tomb, Peter's running, and he says he's running with this other disciple. Uh, So he never dropped his own name, even though it's pretty clear, I think, that it's him that's being referred to. Regardless of who it is, uh, I suspect it's John, there's this dispute about baptism, about ceremonial washing. And John the Baptist's disciples bring the matter to their teacher. So verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising And everyone is going out to him. They're thinking, baptism is our thing, isn't it? We were doing this first. Look, everyone's going to him. They're not coming coming to us anymore. They're going to him. There's an increase in competition. Your market share is being threatened. In fact, it's dwindling. Because this new competitor has hit the scene. John, do something. Tell him to clear off, find his own river. We were here first. But no, John the Baptist says, guys, it's fine. It's okay to play second fiddle to Jesus. In fact, it's it's the way it's meant to be. John tells them pretty clearly, we're not competitors, we're on the same side, and God's God's given different things for different people to do. Look at verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can only receive was given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, and I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. See, when, when the bridegroom comes, of course it's good that the bride gets married to him. When, when Jesus the Messiah comes, it's good that people go to him. Jesus is the main game. John is the pre-show. And John is very clear about what his role is. And he's okay with that. More than okay, he's glad that Jesus has come and is doing his thing. 
John's whole work and ministry has been preparing people to meet Jesus. He's been telling people to turn their lives around in preparation for meeting Jesus, the king who's coming in his kingdom. And now that the kingdom is here, now that the big day is here and Jesus has arrived, well, this is where the wedding analogy comes in. You don't resent the groom at his wedding day. You don't, you're not envious of him. The friend of the groom is just happy to be there to see the day and to celebrate the occasion when you can finally see them married. John says he's full of joy that Jesus has come and that people are going to him. And probably the most humble and gracious thing John says here is verse 30. He must become greater, I must become less. Isn't that great? He wants Jesus to have more and more and more of the spotlight and for himself to become less and less of a distraction. Here is a guy who sees things with incredible perspective. What is it that John knows about Jesus that lets him be so happy to take a back seat? It's not like John's some shy, retiring kind of person who has a preference for introversion and so he's relieved that someone else is taking the spotlight. No, from what we know of John, he seems like an incredibly strong personality who's got lots to say. And usually people like that don't like to pass the microphone to anybody. But there's certain things that I think John knows about Jesus that makes him more than happy to take a backward step, you know, to make room for Jesus to be seen and to be heard. Uh, plenty of things. There's three of them at least. Um, you'll see that in the last part of this passage. First, John knows, verse 31, that Jesus comes from God and speaks God's words. Look at verse 31. John says, The one who comes from above is above all, and the one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who's from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Sometimes I know it can seem like there's too many words almost, that words are cheap in our world. There is so much noise all the time. Everyone has an opinion. Of the making of books, there is no end. And whether it's pop fiction or academia, can you even imagine what it would be like to listen to all the words that are going around on the internet at any given moment, right now? But what is in short supply is a word from God himself. God's self-disclosure. God's opinion. And if the God of the universe, who spoke the world into being, who sustains everything with his powerful word, if that God has something to say to you, the priority has to be that we listen. And if Jesus comes and speaks God's words to us, then John's more than happy for his disciples and for everyone to go to Jesus, to listen to him. Because he's from God and speaks God's words. John the Baptist knows that he's, he's just a man. He's saying helpful things, he's doing good work, but here is someone who trumps even him. 
Uh, Second, if you look at verse 34 again, you see there that John says, Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. Look at verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without limit. Uh, A little footnote there says that uh, in the NIV it says, uh, second half of that, for God gives the Spirit without limit, but there's a little footnote next to the... It really uh, reads, for he gives the Spirit without limit, and you have to work out if the he is talking about Jesus or if he's talking about God. Both are referred to in the previous um, clause. But I suspect it's about Jesus because the next verse says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in the Son's hands including, I'm guessing, the Spirit of God. It's not a coincidence that the Spirit of God and the Word of God are mentioned together. Uh, It's a consistent thing you'll find in Scripture, that Word and Spirit go hand in hand. And where God's Word is heard, the Spirit's at work. The Spirit's present to effect change. Uh, Back in chapter 1 even, we've already seen John the Baptist talk about Jesus as being the one who will baptise people with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 33. And Jesus being the person who can give the Spirit without limit is a big deal because, well, they've been baptising people. Going under the water in the Jordan was one thing. It marked, it marked a, uh, a ritual cleansing. It marked a real desire to turn your life around. But the river water they were baptised in, just like when we open up this baptism pit and baptise people in this water, we say all the time that the water isn't magical. It doesn't do anything to you. It doesn't make you better. You're the same technically when you go into the water as when you come out. The whole thing is symbolic. But where the power to change really is, is through the Spirit of God. The Spirit's work is regeneration and transformation in bringing new life and power to the spiritually dead. And call me a pessimist, but I think I've seen enough of people, including myself, to know that there's very little consequential change if we're left to ourselves without the Spirit of God. And John knows that Jesus is the one who can give the Spirit without limit. So again, Jesus is the one we need to go to. Jesus is the one John's happy to point his own disciples to. Uh, Third, it's been revealed to John that Jesus is the Messiah the Christ, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And so, verse 36, John knows, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. People have to come to Jesus and put their trust in him if they're going to have God's wrath averted. What they've done, how they've lived, hasn't been up to scratch. None of us are deserving of eternal life and entering God's kingdom. And John knows he can't help people the way Jesus can. He can baptise people, he can can ask them to repent, but really there's no way John can offer salvation from God's wrath. There's no way he can offer his disciples eternal life. That's way above his pay grade. But he knows that's what Jesus is doing. And if that's what Jesus is doing, then why wouldn't you want people to go to this one who can save, really save? John had it right. What you want to be doing is encouraging people to develop a relationship with Jesus. 
You want people to see him, to, to come to him, because he is where people are going to find forgiveness and truth and eternal life and the power of God to change. And it's going to cost John the Baptist his followers. Sure. And maybe his popularity and maybe his influence. John might have been a light in the darkness for a time. But when you put him next to Jesus, it's like putting a lighter up to the sun. You, just, you can't really compare. He becomes, John becomes obsolete because in some ways his job was to prepare people for Jesus, but now Jesus is here. John just sort of shuffles off into the background. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. In our day, I was thinking about this, encouraging people to develop a relationship with Jesus can be costly for us too, can't it? Uh, We're not exactly like John. We're not at risk of having our followers dwindle because now they're jumping on to follow Jesus. Last time I checked, I didn't have any followers. I'm not even on Instagram. No, what we fear is that What we fear is that people, because they don't think much of Jesus, if we associate ourselves with Jesus, as we encourage people to check him out, we fear that they're going to think less of us. That is going to cost us, socially, and it could affect how people think about us at work and in our families. You get pigeonholed and misunderstood and you risk people not taking you seriously because you're one of those Christians who want to talk to other people about Jesus. You're one of those Christians who want to evangelise, which that hasn't been flavour of the month for decades. There's a cost and a risk associated with pointing people to Jesus in our city. Less so than around the world where you know life and limb are literally at stake. But even the small risks that we face can be enough to stop us from wanting to go there with people. Let's flip that around a bit. We know, don't we, that Jesus is the only source of forgiveness and eternal life, that his spirit is what people need to revitalise their lives. He's the only chance we've got. Are we seriously saying that we are so worried about what people might possibly think about us that we're not even going to try to point them to the only hope that they have? Are we so desperately needy of people's affirmation of us that We're just not going to tell them what God has said because we're afraid it might make them upset at us. No, Jesus must become greater, even if I must become less. There are admittedly better and worse. There are more and less effective ways of encouraging people to develop a relationship with Jesus. Um, Sometimes we don't do ourselves much of a favour when we sort of blunder into things Clumsily, what we're planning to do as a church in the second half of this year, uh, you might have heard, we want to really focus on helping each other with our relational evangelism. To see opportunities, to be equipped with skills, to be ready and effective in using our lives to help people see how good Jesus is. Uh, That's something which I know has been the desire of lots of us here at Peno. I know that's on your hearts because I've talked a lot to you about it. You want to be better at this. We want to be better at telling people about Jesus for the sake of our friends and our families and our neighbours and our colleagues. And this might be jumping the gun. I might as well tell you. We're about to promote this stuff anyway. We're going to have a church camp uh, later this year in the last weekend of July. And the focus of the camp is going to be how do we sustain a lifestyle 
of evangelism and promoting the gospel and leveraging all the contacts we have to that end. Uh, we've got a great speaker lined up for that camp uh, who's a bit of an expert in that area and is going to help us with practical things. So be at camp this year, plan to be at camp, even if you can only come as a day tripper. Uh, in term three, through our small group networks, there's plans to make material available for our small groups to focus on relational evangelism as well, uh, if you'd like to make use of that, if you're a group leader. And we're committing ourselves in term four to a period of heightened evangelistic activity through a bunch of different initiatives, which I hope you'll get behind. I suppose the details for all that are going to come, I think in a couple of weeks' time, you'll, you'll get the rego forms for camp and everything will come through eventually. And it's safe to say we've got some pretty good things lined up uh, for the second half of this year. But before we get there, almost in preparation for, for all that, I think this passage this, mor- this morning, first of all, makes us ask whether we're willing to go there. It's not about skills, it's not about opportunity, it's about are we willing to share John the Baptist's attitude in wanting people to come to Jesus when you know it could cost you? Whatever else that God's given you to do, do you see the priority of what Jesus is doing and what he's offering people? And so are we happy to become less in the esteem of others so that Jesus might become greater. Amen. Both John the Baptist and John the disciple boldly proclaimed who Jesus was. That mantle falls to us. Are we proclaiming boldly the Lord we love and follow? Let's do it in song as we declare, You are my King.